Welcome to season four of the Such Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Peter, and tonight we are diving into Foundation's Edge, which is book four of the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. I know I've missed everybody. Gentlemen, why don't you go ahead and reintroduce yourselves to our illustrious fans. Dan from Los Angeles. And Jason from Florida. I'm sure that everyone's really happy to see you gentlemen again. So tonight we're going to be getting into the first three chapters. I'm excited. This is the first book that Isaac Asimov had written in this particular series in 34 years. Dan, as master of summaries, why don't you go ahead and uh, kick us off? Bring us up to speed. Thanks, Peter. The story begins on Terminus with Councilman Golan Treviz and Munley Kampor debating the legitimacy of the Sutherland plan and its historical record. Treviz then interrupts the executive council meeting to vocalize his concerns and is ordered into custody by the current mayor, Harla Branham. Treviz is interrogated by security director Lion O'Codell before being remanded to his home where Brano awaits him. She draws out Treviz's second foundation theory and orders him into exile to investigate his hypothesis. Treviz meets Janov Pelorat, a historian who will be his traveling companion on the journey where he learns of an unexpected destination. Brano has similarly dispatched Treviz's fellow councilman Compor to act as a tale across the galaxy. The chapters end with Brano giving Treviz his marching orders on his quest for humanity's origins on Earth. Dan, that was a masterful summary. I'm always impressed by how well you're able to cram all this stuff down in little bite-sized chunks, man. Jason, do you, we have some fan mail this week? You know, we actually do have one and... Was it a word that we were supposed to define for somebody using the website? I think when I read it out loud, you guys will feel for this listener, and hopefully we'll have a good answer for them. The question is, where the space have you been, and why am I listening to the first three seasons for the seventh time? I'll hand it off to you first, Dan, because I think you had like a major life event that really took you away from the podcast. I think ordeal or or tribulation might be a better way of phrasing it. Yes. I'd like to thank... Listener who shall remain nameless from sending in that mail. Allow me this cathartic release. Yeah, so my cabinet doors were missing for what seemed like months. But uh, I finally was joyfully reconnected with them. I, I never thought I'd see them again, to be honest. And they, they made their way back. The prodigal cabinets have returned. And so now my kitchen and, and living room are now as they intended to be. with marginally cleaner paint on the doors. And so, yes, I did have quite the journey. What about you guys? Did you guys do anything interesting between seasons? Before you change the subject, Dan, did you have to replace, like, actual distressing with artificial distressing of your cabinet doors? Or? <laughs> <laughs> yes, wet- weathered. I had It's like stonewashed jeans, except with cabinets. It's the same concepts. So, yes. Less acid. And, right. you know, I think, you know, there's, there's going to be a sardonic listener out there who's going to be like, come on, you had your cabinets resurfaced and that's why you were not recording for months on end. But I would like our listeners to know that Dan, correct me if I'm wrong. You have at least eight or nine cabinet doors, right? Like this, we're not talking small numbers. Like we're talking at least almost 10 or more, maybe even. Way more than 10. Way more than 10? Like like a 12? So you had like a follow-up question, Dan? 
I was wondering if anybody else had any interesting experiences uh, in the weeks slash months since uh, we last got together and talked. I mean, I moved to town over. Well, Long Island's a big place, so still from Long Island. I did actually make a move. Um, I moved from one state to another. So, yeah, as our primary editor, uh, Jason was kind of out of commission. So and our gaps between seasons were not quite as long as the Isomoffs, but uh, pretty long, you know, pretty close. Right. Trying to stay consistent, at least proportionally consistent with the flow of Isomov into the world. You know, we want to keep the flow of foundation roughly similar to the flow of the such nerds podcast into the universe. Once you do one trilogy, you want to have a nice, let it breathe for a bit. So you have some space before the second trilogy comes in. So, and you ruin it with the new trilogy. <laughs> Talking about the, the timeline in which this was written. So it, it was uh, 34 years between the last book uh, of Second Foundation and Foundation's Edge. Uh, book came out in uh, 1982, uh, which was a year after God Emperor of Dune, which was the fourth book in the Dune series. Uh, Empire Strikes Back had come out at that point. So some major sci-fi cornerstones. Yeah. For me, it felt like Isimov really changed structure of how he wrote this novel compared with the original trilogy, right? Yeah, he's definitely the marks of a mature writer are all over these first three chapters, at least. And now we have we're getting more of the story from different viewpoints. Um, and I think the the lenses in which these people see the world is more distinct than they have been previously. It's also the cadence. There's a tightness to it where, you know, like if you think about in the, in Isamov's past, in these 50 pages, whatever, 60 pages, how much meat is there? You know, like we, we kind of talked about the end of the last trilogy where the, the last section was sort of like frantic almost, packed all this action into these periods. If you'd think about this setup in the first couple chapters here, Thinking about it in one of the earlier books, it probably would have taken months for him to put this kind of this kind of action sequence together. And right off the bat, as soon as the the, the chapters start, he kind of you know is right into the meat of the story without a lot of fluff. So I, I think I noticed more that your point about him being a more mature writer, he he gets right to the point. It's exciting, and I'm excited to see where like you know Asimov as like a mature writer is going to go in this novel. Yeah, after waiting like half a book for Hobart Mallow to kind of get get down to the skin, it was in two pages, and they're already down to the sash. Right? Yeah. So I'm sure the payoff was immediate for you, Peter. It was excellent. It was excellent. Uh, well, I mean, that's all great observations, guys. I was just thinking, you know, he used to give names to his, like, chapters, right? He had section names and chapter names. And now he just has chapter names and subchapter numbers. Like, that's all I was thinking of. But I mean, like, all your points are, are like, you know, interesting as well. I, I powered through it. I, it didn't take me long at all to go right through it. And then I hit, I had to touch base with Jason to make sure I didn't read ahead by accident. Because Which is of, a cardinal sin. So I'm Because glad it was, you're... you know, it was high quality reading and uh, a lot, a lot going on. And then, yeah. 
and co-hosts have disappeared for less. So <laughs> you're going to do something egregious like read ahead. You know, you're just asking for a mysterious disappearance. Yeah, or, or a relocation to a to a cabinet in a different state. <laughs> cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> coming into this episode like i told you guys my my head was at there's like expected isomov and unexpected isomov right that we're finding in this novel i think the like the structure and the pace is maybe a little bit unexpected um isomov but when i go to like the titles of the chapters it's very expected isomov i mean we're our first three chapters are councilman mayor and historian and i think two of those chapter titles were at least used in previous previously books. absolutely yeah. and then space coming up which space which is very never heard that one before unexpected in a science fiction novel great space <laughs> eyes and mouth speaking of people who need a thesaurus too bad that such nerds podcast right. wasn't around when yeah, he was right. writing his books he he in written in do you know any other words in the english language aside from mayors and space Sardonic. <laughs> he asks sardonically. Did, did we get any sardonics in these first three chapters? There was one of uh, what's his name, Treviz, when he was during his interrogation. He was he was pushing back a bit on the security director. He was kind of like manufacturing a uh, a confession per se, as he later found out. Treviz was being played a little bit by the security apparatus of uh, Mayor Harlan Brando. <laughs> uh, yes, one sardonic. So we have one sardonic. So this is like stamp of Isomov sardonic. Mm. But nobody smokes. No smoking. Well, yeah. So, Not yet. So there's a, there's a lot of other like minor differences like that. Nobody smokes. You know what else I noticed? The mayor doesn't have a beard. She was phrased as a rather masculine woman from what she I could have a beard. You just this is you true. Don't know yeah. The other thing was maybe they figured out, I don't know, the Cold War era, the long interregnum. Might have taught them that there there are possibly some negative consequences of nucleics everywhere. So we haven't seen very much nucleic action. Correct. Not yet, at least, right? And I'm, Again, I'm yeah, still kind of – we're in the politics phase. And so we haven't seen a ton of technology yet. Well, um, but I mean, touching back on kind of the time frame that you're talking about, you know, I guess in 1950-whatever, it's like right after World War II and nuclear technology is new. You smash mm -hmm. cut like – Clean like, energy. Yeah. 1982 is like kind of the peak of the so Soviet Union's probably got like 19,000 nuclear warheads. So it's probably like you're kind of like, yeah, maybe we kind of overdid a little bit with the nucleics, you know, by let's, that point in let's time. Let's downplay how awesome nuclear things are. Was Chernobyl 70s or was Chernobyl early 80s? 1986. 86. 86. Yeah. Three Mile Island was uh, 79. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought Three Mile Island was like earlier than that, but that really wasn't. As much of a catastrophe, really, nothing actually happened to Three Mile Island. But, but yeah, not quite there yet. So nucle nucleics or nuclear powers mainstream, but it's not a nuclear reactor isn't the size of your thumb. It's the size of your neighborhood. Yeah. It's, not it's not this the panacea. Not the panacea. The other thing that I noticed was Inber is still taking a lot of heat. And the uh, time of Inber and the mule, right, comes up. As a uh, turning point in the latitude of mayors or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like held up as like the pinnacle of incompetence. <laughs> so. <laughs> so it's pretty much they just throw them right into the bus. 
Do you like gardening and or paper folding? Then the time of inverse was the time for you. You know, not not right. great. We need, we need time for proficient mayors whose name makes me think of paper towels. Well, I so. mean, Hober, I say Hober Mallow and Salver Harden are kind of your two totems of the, you know, 488 in, years into the foundation era, I right. guess. I mean, it makes sense, right? They're like part of the foundational members of the foundation, right? Well, we still talk about it. George Washington and yeah, Jefferson but and that's Madison. what I was going to say. Those guys are ha- the, the the United States is not even 250 years, so you know it's 245 years old. That's half as long as the foundational era. So the fact that those two guys are the names, but the, they also touch that on that in the book that really ever since the mule, there's not a whole lot. There hasn't even been a scratch on a ship in 120 years. There's not been a whole lot that's happening after the the era of the mule. Mm-hmm. And you know there was a little bit of foreshadowing I noticed in that where it was kind of like, mm, yeah. And they're bringing that up. Yeah. Just to throw back to our finale um, comment you made, Dan, they're kind of, they've been bumper bowling for a while, it looks like, right? And we know what the bumpers are in the previous books, right? That brought them back on course. So it's like strong whiffs of second foundation influence. But the whole thing of, of Travis is like, he's trying to highlight this to the, to the general public and everybody that we're on very conveniently on rails. Right. Yeah. But everybody who's like, seems to apparently know better are trying to get him like, shut up, like kicking him under the table. Like, shut up. What are you doing? You know, why are you saying it out loud? Don't, don't speak about that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like really, I'm, you know, I came away from the first three chapters, highly suspicious of Marlon Brando, their mayor. And, you know, regardless of the fact that she's known for what did they call her? Harla, the bronze, Brano, the bronze. There's a, a star of a movie called a ground car named desire, I believe. <laughs> um, and <laughs> so she's known as Brano, the bronze. So like, despite the fact she's like named after a metal composed of a tin component, um, you know, I'm highly suspicious of her affinity for letting the Selden plan ride the rails, if you will. I thought some of her comments are pretty interesting. And when, when she's, I mean, obviously she's doing the politician act and she doesn't want, she wants things to flow smoothly. But then when she finally gets Trevise sort of on the side and then they actually engages with him, you know, between the, the sides between her and also with the security director where it's like, well, maybe the plan's going so well that they ha- don't have to intervene, you know, because nothing's happening. There's not that much they have to do. Um, and at the same time, they are there and they are interacting with us. It's probably for the best that they don't realize that we know that that's the case. So, like, all these are good reasons why, you know, Trevise should, if he wants to bring it up, there's a better ways to do it than just, like, you know, shout it out to everybody in the universe. Because if these guys are who you say they are and they're still around, then it's probably not the best plan to sort of draw this attention to yourself and scream about right. how, oh, the second, like, they'd be like, you know, squash you out. Right. You need to have some tact about the situation. Don't be a idiot freshman councilman. Freshman. Yeah. Sophomoric, I guess. You yeah. Know. Don't be a sophomoric freshman. So like a neophyte, like, like a, a neophyte. neophyte, right? <laughs> like a Tyro deep cut junior, junior, <laughs> junior council person. Uh, you know why I thought of Tyro? Because like not all of I us have to look it up, but this is the first book that we're reading 
of Isimov's where some of the co-hosts on this podcast were actually Tyros at the time that it was written. And as as the senior member of the podcast, uh, yeah, this was. <laughs> it was at least Dan. At least Dan was alive. I wasn't a twinkle in my father's eye yet. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> and Dan, I Dan and I are close in age, but uh, I'm older, if not wiser. <laughs> Don't forget, better looking. <laughs> right. Yeah. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, Peter. That's why I'm the most beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true cult leader. <laughs> so, you know, we have like the absence of nucleics. So this is kind of uncharacteristic, uncharacteristic of Isimov. I mean, mm-hmm. we start off with a bang. The mayor is a woman. So it's like we're already this it's whole pretty progressive. Of, yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the gender journey that he went through in the first books of kind of neutralizing his position from all dudes to a balanced, you know, yeah, portfolio. having heroines, yeah, right, yeah. Um, is kind of like flipped on its head. Now it's you know we've got the wise female mayor calling Golan at one point like a stupid boy or something like that. I mean, she calls him a fool more than once. I think she calls him a mindless boy. So we've really, you know, flipped the swung the pendulum to the other extreme now. Um, instead of old woman being called to, you know, the mother and wife of the country uh, wood planet people, we've got you know men running around being called mindless boys. So that was an interesting turn. I was thinking more of the um, the the failed warlord. I was like, it's a little early to tell, but the mayor doesn't appear to be a one dimensional shrew. So I guess really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's got I don't know actual... who the mayor's father is and who her husband is, but um, you know, might might I might turn out to be too like with many other Asimovian circumstance. Thank you, you know, a little little early on the on the trigger before you realize later that there was something else in the background. But she doesn't. She appears to be you know playing chess a couple of steps ahead of Treviz anyway because she's already yeah. Been I mean, even Compor right? Marlon Brando offers you know him a. Gives him an offer he can't refuse. Right? Harlan. Harlan Brando. Totally different. Oh, Harlan Brando. Harlan Brando. Harlan Brando. Harlan. Yeah. Brawny Brando. <laughs> Got it. So. Brawny Mando. Brawny Mando. <laughs> Brando Rando, I believe, is their name. Have you guys seen the latest uh, season of the, the Brandamorian? <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Peter, because, you know, it's not just Star Wars that's concurrent now with the, the writing of, of the fourth book of the Foundation series. Right. It's Godfather we've got, 1 and 2. We've got, like, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. The early, the early 80s was really, it was a great time. A lot of great things came into the world at, like, the tail end of the 70s and the early 80s, you know. Like podcast hosts. Right, right. Like certain podcast Saviors of humanity. Co-hosting this particular podcast. You know, you mentioned you mentioned the Brandalorian, right? There's a lot of like, you know, thematic consistency with Star Wars and the Foundation series and Dune. And I took note of being a Dune fan myself of some notable highlights on the very first page of the first chapter of this section. Really? You want to share this with us? Within the second paragraph, 
He talks about Terminus as now a kind of water planet, and I immediately think Caladan. Okay. And then he talks about the introduction of weather control, which is like highlighted throughout the Dune series. And I want to say that the most drastic example was in God Emperor. The addition of water to the planet. That was like literally like within a year of the release of this book, uh, God Emperor was on the street like a year before, right? So I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. And I noticed like that. So that turned my, my Dune radar on high alert. And so everything I, I encountered throughout here was like, mm, is that Dune related? Is that, did that come from Dune? It's hard to know because like God Emperor of Dune came out a year before Foundation's Edge. And so you think about like the publishing cycle, like how long was that actually on the street? where isaac had access to it and then it could have influenced his work like is he going back and uh revising his stuff to kind of reflect these you know neat ideas i don't really know a ton about his writing process i know that he was very uh regimented with his writing process like he would put on a three-piece suit and go from his bedroom to his office and write for four hours and then he would break for lunch and then he would you know go back and write for another three hours. Like he basically sat at a desk writing for like at least seven hours a day. So I don't know how much kind of like how much was research. time is he spending like reading all of Frank's yeah. work and how much is he going back and actually revising stuff? Cause I think he used well, a typewriter, but he, he didn't also use... edited uh, his galaxy magazine at the time too. Right. So he uh, had like a lot of sci-fi stories flowing through his magazine publication and a lot of exposure to kind of what was in the air. So anyway, I mean, you're, yeah, I mean, it could be coincident um, or just hearing the same things from what was present in the news at the time or whatever the case may be. But yeah. I mean, so an interesting little uh, fact I found out was that this was Isaac's first New York Times bestsellers list. And he had written something like 244 other works before this one, which is a, like a prolific amount of writing. And like three autobiographies, too. <laughs> exactly. We're in <laughs> At least two by this point, right? Yeah. I guess it won the Hugo or something like that for the next year. Um so I don't know whether I mean, you'd say on early returns, I don't think any of his pre or prior works were well written enough in foundation anyway to, to win any prizes. So, you know, I when I read that in the intro, I was like, oh, well, this one, you know, maybe it's a great book. And, um, you know, certainly starts out that way for sure. Yeah. And, and, and you wonder how much of it is it, that it was great, how much of it was that it was a continuation of a series that had time to become popular, mm -hmm. right? It's like when you re-release Ecto Cooler to the market after pulling it off the shelves for so long. Like, people are going <laughs> to frenzy, you know? It's like, it's, it's like the McRib. Sort of like the McRib. McRib's timeless. Ecto it Cooler, is. not quite so much. <laughs> so. Well, the other thing that was funny, what the council people are talking about, you know, with Trevise and... Uh, and Compor about how, you know, the foundation is used to be the small, you know, world. They didn't even have any metal. And now it's the sort of suburban Disneyland-esque area where they have all this metal and kind of like they're going the intimation that they're kind of going, they've gotten soft in the intervening years. 
And he makes a point. There's this enormous change, but we don't accept it. In our hearts, we want the small foundation, the small one-world operation we had in the old days, the days of iron heroes and noble saints that are gone forever. Deborah's kind of looking backwards at the the days of yesteryear. The good old days. The good old days. You know, it's been very Times were simple fashion. but hard. Yeah. Although he mislabeled them. I mean, he called them the, the, the days of iron heroes, but I think it was the days of tin heroes for the most yeah, part. Yeah, exactly. He's almost gone backwards. I mean, he was like, he, he was into tin in the first trilogy. Now he's into like bronze and iron. So it's like, we're kind of mm-hmm. like, maybe he's, yeah. you know. His reverse metallurgy that he's, he's basically found the tin and he's just been to picking it right. apart. It's like the descending what... baseline with the ascending <laughs> melody over it kind of thing. Like, nah. It goes mm-hmm. in the other direction to counterpoint the the pointer yeah, count. Yeah. Point, ca- point, counter, count, pointer count. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> my my favorite 80s related note is that um Lion-O from the thundercats apparently has been promoted to director of yes Shakira. he's got he's got sight beyond sight which is how he's conducting the interrogation good catch dan thunder thunder thundercats thundercats ho oh. director of security with his neuronic whip and his pet snarf to make sure that that uh, what's his name Why doesn't know? escape. Snarf, <laughs> I don't know about this. You know what I thought was a really interesting point in this uh, first couple chapters is when they fought Mumra. Thought that that was really weird. You like, read well, ahead. Bringing the occult mysticism aspect of it that was really unexpected. Mm. Mm. What in the name of the mule's grandmother is the mayor doing without a beard? Ridiculous. <laughs> what does this galaxy come to? I latched on to the fact that he highlights Arcady as a biographer of his of her grandmother, right? He talks about her biography like losing its kind of like factual aura and becoming kind of a romance story, romantic story. But Trevise is like, he's savvy enough so he can cut through the the romantic, you know, fluff and see that the there's like legitimate, you know, hardline biographic history, you know, wrapped into this biography of, uh, so I thought it was just like Isomov's empathy for the biographer, just like bleeding through the pages right there, like painfully obvious. So I think like, I want to get eventually into some of the technology stuff because there's like, there is some new, there's a new obsession that he's got here, you know, to take the place of nucleics. But before we get there, I think it's worth talking about a little bit of like the scene playing out. And so Dan, you, you highlighted in your summary, but this Trevise characters is obviously going to become central to the search for earth. Right. And Brano is kind of central to the protecting of the, I'll say the the veil over Second Foundation's influence in the Selden plan. I don't know if she is a Second Foundationer, but she's certainly actively obfuscating the conversation about the Second Foundation. Uh, I took it as she was she was trying to like, you know, not that she was that, that she might be a Second Foundationer, which is a possibility, but I think that she's more suspicious of the second foundation and knows that there there's the possibility of machinations in the background and she's trying not to show her hand so i'd like to just read a little 
reminder for you, Peter, and this may may or may not sway you, but I'm going to read it anyway. Go ahead. I think it's relevant. Without any obvious charisma, she had the knack of persuading the voters those quiet decisions would be right. I took that as she is quietly competent. Right. That seems to be her main character attribute is that she is competent Mm -hmm. and she is not bombastic. She's not flamboyant. She's not showy. um, She's not seductive. She is just like everybody knows that one person who when they say something, you're like. There's we need to do what they're saying because they are practical. They have weighed every side of this argument and if we go along with what they have to say then we will be in the clear so they're like the complete opposite as me of me as a host and a religious leader right which i only rely on my charm and my bombastic and over-the-top comments to sway people If somebody's quietly competent, they're probably running a legitimate organization rather than a cult. Right, exactly. You know, sort of like <laughs> they're not milking their money. Self, it's just like then it wouldn't be a cult. It would be like right. Know. It would just be a, a business organization. The fact that it's a cult is like well, it's just a crack up a wild idea run by some sort of charlatan. Yeah. Right. So exactly. I'm totally not with you on this, Peter. And I'll just okay. like I think we'll have to it's just okay agree to be wrong. Disagree. We're we allow different. Well, it's like I, they'd say nothing of competence. They say nothing of competence. They just talk about making quiet decisions and somehow magically convincing everybody that their decision is going to be right without any charisma or any flamboyance or any attention-grabbing activity. Somehow everybody's minds just align with her mm-hmm. approach. I mean, it's possible, right? It's not I without mean, possibility. Either she is good. or somebody's standing behind her tweaking everybody to follow whatever she says or tweaking her to do mm. what they've already tweaked everybody to believe or who knows, you know, like, yeah, my counter like, argument. It, there's a line about that in Trevis. He's arguing with her and he says, I have half even thought that you even might be under the control. Your accurate guess as to what Selden's image would say and your subsequent treatment of me could all be second foundation. You could be a hollow shell with a second foundation content. Yeah. And what does she do? She sends him out on this goose chase to find earth with some historian who's never been in space and a trailer to watch them and make sure that they aren't successful or whatever. Right. Yeah. That strikes right. me well, as a, that strikes me as a political move though. It's not it necessarily it's, it's that a showy oh, political. it's be, it's like, she knows he's got a, like it's clear when she talks to him that there's a kernel of truth there that she's afraid of. And what's more, it threatens her sort of, you know, if you, and the good reading, it threatens her ability as the administrator to carry out the Selden plan. The bad reading, it threatens her ability to sort of be in control as sort of the, uh, the the political power she has. And whichever one is true or false, the outcome is the same. You need to get that guy out of there before he starts, you know, either alerting the second foundation or, you know, making the case that the emperor has no clothes. So she basically has to get him out on the road and have some plausible story that she could do so. And she sort of does both. Now, it remains to be seen whether she is, you know, is a hero or a fool, you know, I guess in in the terms, whether she's sort of like a second foundationer who's just, you know, 
uh, an empty suit who's covering up or whether she's actually like a legitimate leader who's, you know, working them on the Selden plan. Yeah, uh, see, I, I'm of the belief that if she really were a second foundationer and that she would basically do what we've seen the other second foundationers do, which is you kind of isolate somebody and then you can use your emotional manipulation techniques to kind of like scrub out parts of their mind that you don't like. Right. Like we saw that with um, the fight over Hans Pritcher, Han Pritcher, um, with uh, he will always be Hans Pritcher in my mind. Um, and the mule, right, where they had the conflicting motivations and it was almost like a mind controlled situation. And then ultimately with the mule himself, it's like they managed to scrub out his whole motivation over whether or not the second foundation even existed. And that kind of moved things along for you know until the end of his reign right so if they if it was just a matter of like hey look this guy's suspecting something we need to we need to silence him like there's an easier way to do that than arrest him publicly and exile him essentially uh that would allow you to maintain cover better i think that she has her own political motivations going on um, for trying to get to the bottom of whether or not the second foundation is really pulling all the strings. But I think we're still kind of, we've got a notional ultimate goal, but we're still not really sure is the second foundation there for the benefit of humankind or are they there for the benefit of the second foundation? Right. Like what's really, are we just cultivating sheeple that they can exploit in their aristocratic society of the utopia they've imagined or are people going to be kind of free to self-actualize and all this kind of happy democratic type ideal that the first foundation seems to really be driving towards and i want to believe that the second foundation is trying to keep them on course towards this end but if they're being coddled by the second foundation it kind of upends the whole idea of trial by fire that was the theme of the first book, which is like, you know, you have to do something hard and grind your life out of these, this, you know, non-metallic ore that is just basically rocks on a planet and you got to be hardened. And you know, it's like, I started to kind of second guess this whole, this whole kind of initial vector. Yeah. I, I wonder if, and I, you know, I'm seeing this through the eyes of someone who read the first three books, right? Um, but like we we speculated originally that it was. Wait, well, hold on, Peter. Like, you read all three books with us? I read all three books, believe it or not. <laughs> I know it sounds like I didn't didn't do any other reading every time I show up on this podcast, <laughs> but I actually do read it. Um, yeah, but initially we thought like, oh, okay, maybe maybe it's about, you know, we're not we're under we're under funding this planet essentially you know terminus by you know sending the the encyclopedia effort out there so that they you know will have to use their wits basically to to conquer these these issues and it could have been also that hey look if we send them to this planet that doesn't have any natural resources they're not really going to be a target right it could have been multifaceted um and then they had to rely on their wits to move things uh, towards the the direction of trade instead of war or conquest. 
or um, and they weren't it, it was trade of knowledge and and the development of religion and stuff like that as opposed to uh, you know raw goods trading which came later um, so yeah and I, I can't help but think like it's they've been in this like uh, peaceful era and this was another theme that kind of popped into my head from and not to you know if our audience is not read the Dune series and would like to not be spoiled and, you know, skip ahead like 20 seconds or something. But <clears throat> when in God Emperor, when he, he basically, there's like some unrest in the, in the city square of the capital or something like that. And he's had like this reign of peace for like 2000 years or something ridiculous. I forget what, how many years it was. And he just like unleashes this like hurtful violence on the crowd to stop this unrest in, you know, as it breaks out. And his whole thing is like, he just has to like react so severely to this unrest in order to maintain his peace. But he's really kind of setting the stage for this catastrophic event at the end of the, of the book. And I'll I'll stop there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can't help think of that because it's like you've had this like wave of peace for so long. Like what when's the shoe gonna drop? And is that what we're gonna see in this novel? It's just like oh. all hell breaks loose. And of course. It would just like wouldn't be a book know, if nothing happens. It upends right? this whole course of perfection and everything like that. It's kind of setting the stage for that kind of mm-hmm. a turn of events. So Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh Dan, you've been pretty quiet and uh I don't want to scare you away by keeping you in the in the cabinet. <laughs> um, why don't you uh, weigh in your thoughts here and steer us with? Your well, wisdom. I mean, like to your point about about the uh, you know, it's like the stability breeds instability type of system approach. Where I mean, I think about it like with regards to, to earthquakes in California because it's like. The fact that there are little earthquakes every day is a good problem, is a good thing, because then you have these kind of periodic, low-level dispersions of energy. That's a positive, even if you know you might have a little bit of damage from the smaller, uh, the smaller levels. The because the flip side of that is if you don't have these periodic small discharges of whatever energy is in the system, then it just capacitively like builds up, builds up, builds up, up, and then where ninety nine percent of the damage from earthquakes would come from the one big one. And so, like your point about the God Emperor thing, where it's better to have sort of periodic throws of of an evolutionary society rather than just fist on it being pressed down, you know, because eventually all that energy built up over a period of time is going to explode somewhere and you can't keep the lid on it and you're much better off sort of doing it in the short term rather than just waiting for a cat giant cataclysm at the end you know the shoe like you're saying the other shoe is going to drop and who knows what it's going to look like but it's probably not going to be pretty because if everyone's just sort of been living under the thumb for so many years you got to wonder like how how lockstep they've been in with like the the actual selden plan since uh, they've been able to stay on the course, you know, this course for so long. And it's, it's tough because the second foundation is set up as almost like this prescient organization that's anticipated every possibility. So they have to be anticipating that there's going to be some kind of violent uprising possibly. 
But it's like the existence of the second foundation, it's like this paradox of psychohistory, right? If psychohistory is supposed to kind of predict the future, but you need these psychohistorians to shepherd the future along, then it's not really, you know, it's not really fulfilling its objective. It's just a little bit better than maybe what we know today, but it's not like the future vision, if you will. There's still this kind of course that can be disrupted. So, right. Yeah. Like when we saw that with the mule, right? It's, it's something unanticipated. And then it's a matter of steering it back towards that course correction. So, you know, obviously we have. It's like, it's like they talked about with Bill Rio is like the last sort of, you know, comp, competent, ambitious general. And then, he he got what was coming to him and then it was like well that's what you get when you try to fight the you know try to fight the system and now 250 years later nobody's really said boo but you've got to wonder if underneath there's a storm coming in a certain right. sense and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out one of the um other topics you know we don't have tobacco we don't have a lot of space swears i don't think this time around yeah, we do have some technology. I know we've talked about some of it, but I, I think that it's worth mentioning computers. And there was a whole big rail that Isamov got on about the flight control systems of the spacecraft, and they're all computerized and all this kind of stuff. And then he also talks about how he still has to like. There's still some judgment involved. Like he has to kind of have good computers and also be kind of a good navigator to be able to jump space and land in roughly the same place in the galaxy as the person he's following. So I thought that was interesting. It was reminded me of the, um, you know, the stars and the 3d map, but you still have to kind of like tune it by hand. And it's yeah. like, mm -hmm. you know, you're still, there's this amazing 3d map of the universe and you still have to manually kind of line it up. It's just <laughs> touch of it's inconsistency. The, the, kernel, the kernel of brand new technology, just like through an extremely old technology framework. Like, right. oh, it's like this super fancy hyper VCR that I have for playing my movies. And it's just, <laughs> it's like when I was, when, when LaserDisc came out and I was just like, oh, look at this technology. It's like, oh yeah, it's just a giant digital record that you have to flip over halfway through the movie and it's like right. you almost got it it's digital that's great <laughs> the quality's good but like why does it have to be tremendously large and you flip it over you have to flip it over twice and, and change the disc use four discs for like a movie <laughs> laser disc and exactly like, you're almost there but at the same time there's right. a fatal flaw that it makes like basically mm -hmm. like viewed in the frame of like what technology was before yeah. where you're like yeah this is not quite it you maybe become amazing one disc in and watch a whole movie that would be fantastic and and despite this like new you know harping on the computerization of the ship it's like it's like a new technology right like 50,000 years in the future they didn't quite have the computerization but 50,500 years they have this massive leap to computers <laughs> in the in the end when he when the historian starts talking he goes on you know the grandpa simpson rant about oh i don't want the library where things have been computerized oh they lose everything he kind of right. like i don't know if i like paper like yeah. projects all the charm mm -hmm. you know reading on a digital tablet hurts my eyes yeah and headaches i like the paper ones he's raging about the computerization of libraries and <laughs> clearly Trevise is like 
Shakes this his guy, old man fist. This guy is... And there's all these kids on my lawn. <laughs> and Trevise is kind of like, what have I got? What have I gotten myself into with this clown? You know, screaming about libraries going to Earth. He's just like right. talking about this fantasy planet of Earth. They said the ship's yeah. plenty big. It fits two or possibly even three uncomfortably. And he's just like, I'm going to be trapped in space with this goober. I just wonder, uh, like, how much like that spaceship must stink. Oh, but like, yeah, body I mean, it's like a high heaven. Yeah. Like, oh man, why'd you have to eat yogurt? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, that's just hot making, making falafel. The side. <laughs> I thought it was a nice contrast, though. Like to think about when she's talking to Compor and she's telling him to follow these two through the galaxy. Um, she's saying that you should put a hyper relay on the ship. And I just thought it was quaint that they're still using that 400-year-old technology of hyper relays <laughs> at this point in the history. Of maybe, the maybe it's like era. a bug. It's like like interchangeable with the term bug. It is, it's but just, it's, it's just like, smaller. It's like you know, Moore's law times yeah. 400 years. It's just right. like, and then they Head say, oh, it's, it's, you can't. The funny thing that though was funny is he says, well, it's be obvious. You couldn't. They couldn't hide it. Like it's clearly a big device that you can mm-hmm. find. Not like it's like this, like <laughs> the size of your atom like stick. You'd imagine how many, years. yeah, how it's many like, hyper you know, on the head of a pin yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, no, well, he's gonna see it. It's just the, it's a, they only make them in giant boxes marked relay, and then you have the staple <laughs> on the side. It's like a red light that flashes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Twirls. It it emits the characteristic high pitched whine of a hyper relay. They want to work on that technology. To silence that after four hundred. Since they years. have they have no war and they have all these military spacecraft that have and have a sh- no scratch on them. They have no battles. You figure they could spend some money on you know the scientific mentality, but no, we have to have a random guy follow you on the hyperspace jumps. You know, mm-hmm. just to make sure you don't get. Just make sure you duck behind a tree every so often so you don't look suspicious. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, and at the same time, he's following him in space. Uh, right, exactly. Like, there's another, you know, I just imagine these things are all like the size of a tent. Yeah. It's, it's like, two oh, it's for three people. For but billions really, of light years. And it's just like. <laughs> this is just like these tents flying in space. Like, yeah, but it's like a tent on the inside, right? It's like it's like a like a two man tent on the inside of this giant spaceship, but the spaceship itself is probably like the size of a city block, right? Just to scoot around, right? I don't know. Yeah, you never know. You gotta have room for all those vacuum. They talk tubes. about it being sporty, so it could. Arla Brando is ice cold. She probably gave him, you know, she probably sticking it to Trevise where it where it hurts him. It's since he is clearly like a man about town. Um, Gave him the least cool spaceship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is so painfully uncool, Mom. The gremlin of spaceships, like nice. Terrence, the universe. I like it. <laughs> so, to his credit, he does invent like computers responding to thought and um, mental shielding. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. he does. He does go out on a little bit of a limb. That's like mm, this is kind of well. You know, mental shielding was a theme in the last book, right? That was part of the part of the concern of well, if they think that we're here, the mental static device. Have, yeah, they'll have a mental static device, and then we'll yeah. lose all of our control. Yeah. But that was like made from hyper reels, like kludged together from hyper relays. <laughs> like, right? I need all the hyper relays. <laughs> this series of hyper relays, why welded together to and a daisy chain them all together. It's like it's like it's like it's the sheriff of Nottingham with just keys on his belt, just hyper relays <laughs> jangling against each other, tied to his belt. Yeah. yeah. 
the uh, we're just getting started here, right? But we're through the intro. We can, we've met the key characters. Do you want to kind of wrap us up and and take us out, Peter? Yeah, Compor has been sent out on a on a chase mission, right? We're trying to, you know, we got one character who's trying to find Earth. Yep. Um, we have one who's begrudgingly, you know, been sent away to try to find the second foundation, and we have our scheming, um, hyper competent androgynous mayor like hanging out yeah no no nobody's been sent to find the second foundation compor has been sent to follow the earth seekers right right but that that the but earth yeah. seeking is a cover for trying to find actual oh, okay yeah so the, the two people foundation. on the same ship are trying to find two different things but right not. yeah so the historian is the cover story I don't think that the mayor really cares about the Earth portion of it. It's more of a cover story that she wants yeah, to exactly. go out. Treviz is the lightning rod to draw out the lightning, you know. So it seems like he's sort of the bait. He's mm-hmm. on the hook. He's going to the ride guy. the lightning like Metallica, <laughs> which was also <laughs> like about the yeah, same. Speaking of things that were created in the 80s. Yeah. So I will say, though, again, but Brano, who I, I said, like, I am suspect suspicious of second foundation influence in Brano. He makes like a casual mention right before we get to the next section that I have not started yet called space. He, he puts in a little comment here that, um, Trevise adjusted his sash. Yes. The sash to the proper snugness and wondered how long the two of them, Brano and Codell were ever apart. So apparently Codell is like, always around Brano. Yeah. And so there's like, in my mind, there's a good chance that, that she is like, this is her trusted partner or whatever, or ally. Director of security. Yeah. He's like her right hand man. That could be like quietly tweaking her brain, you know, and she doesn't. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah, I didn't catch that. It's a good catch. Lion-O with the sight. Right. So on that note, um, I think that, We've probably covered enough ground here to call it a night. I've been your host tonight, Peter, along with my beautiful, illustrious co-hosts. Dan from Los Angeles. And Jason from Florida. And I'm looking forward to talking to you guys more next week. So have a good night, everybody. Have a good night. Bye-bye.